Hello, and welcome to the second half of SF Crossing the Gulf's Cordwainer Smith episode. Last episode, we talked about Scanners Live in Vain and then The Lady Who Sailed the Soul. At the end of that episode, we were just making a transition into talking about Alpha Alpha Boulevard, and that's where we'll start off this episode. And we'll conclude the episode by talking about one of Smith's later stories on the gem planet. So I hope you'll enjoy. Okay, so Alpha Alpha Boulevard, then... I um, love this story so much, I gotta say. This was when Smith finally clicked for me. Okay, excellent, excellent. Because I have to admit, so I grew up reading this stuff, I, I think the, f- the first... The first Smith I actually read, I was probably 15, and I read the Cashier O'Neill stories first. But that was okay, because, you know, I, I was like, oh yeah, look at this fun, you know, fun set of stories about a guy trying to do this international stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then I think I read Norstrilla, which is his science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. And then I picked up this collection. And my dad and I were reading it, and... And we were reading through, it was like, oh, hey, you know, did you like that? Oh, yeah, that was was great. Do you see what he did there? And then we both got to Alpha Alpha Boulevard, and we were like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. And I think I get it a little bit better now, but it's it's still a heck of a thing. It is a heck of a thing, but it's a heck of a thing that I I appreciate because um, it, it, it is audacious. Okay, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself again. But I do want to say one thing about um, the protagonist, one of the protagonists in Alpha, Alpha Boulevard. It's the first depiction of a woman that did not annoy me. <laughs> well, besides Helen, of course. Yeah, Helen, Helen, I just loved Helen because she was, like say, she had such a good head on her shoulders. And even though yeah. she, halluc- even though she hallucinated somebody to rescue her, she still rescued herself. There you go, yes. Um, but... But what, what I found amazing about this is that within the context of the story of Alpha Alpha Boulevard, you're still going to have that kind of 1950s or earlier stereotypical depiction of a very feminine kind of woman. Mm-hmm. But in the context, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't annoy you. The annoying thing about the, the 1950s woman cropping up in these stories is that it's supposed to be the far future. Yeah. You expect to be some kind of change, you know, but, but in this context, it's actually perfect. Sorry. Yeah. Take it away. Take it away, Karen. Okay. So Alpha Alpha Boulevard is exactly what Karen was talking about, where after all these years, um, immortality has essentially been discovered. That's where Nostrilla comes in. Um, there's this drug, the Santa Clara drug, um, that lets people live for however much time they can kind of afford. And up until, right up before the events of Alpha Alpha Boulevard, this had become standardized. Basically, the world was so, the the universe, the galaxy, was so tightly controlled by the instrumentality that when you were born, you got 400 years. And every day you could wake up and go, I have 276 days and 84, you know, 276 years and 84 days left to live. Which I would find terrifying personally, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Um, and, and finally people, and, and no one was allowed to get hurt and there's telepathic controls on everything and humanity has become a very stagnant, um, body of people supported by robots and under people. Under people is a very important concept in Mm -hmm. Mm Smith. They're his stand in for minorities in, in his universe. Um, you know, sort of. Not quite untouchable. Well, actually, more like untouchables. Um, 
and and other stories, including uh, the Dead Lady Clowntown and the Ballad of Lost Camel, go through the emancipation of under under people. And in a way, I think the game of Rat and Dragon shows you um, the the sort of uh, almost a bit of an origin story mm. for under people. Mm-hmm. Because what you really have is um, animals um, have animals have been genetically combined with people, and the game of Rat and Dragon is about how they first have um, cats, <laughs> cats partnering with with with, um, with human pilots or, or not quite pilots, more like defenders. Defenders, yeah, in in a in a telepathic bond, right? To to ward off this, um, you know, the pain of space, or that the thing that you're talking about in, in Scanners Living Being, right, and and right. Um, the the, the cats see them, the dragon, humans see it as a dragon, the cats see it as as a rat. But either way, it's this thing that attacks and tries to get at life as it's going through the the void of space, right. and they they kind of you know ward it off in, with their various um, um, particular weapons and so forth. Sorry, I'm digressing a bit. But the interesting thing about the game of Rat and Dragon is that you see how the, the human cat attachment sort of begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a weird flash of one of Smith's types of women I hate, the, the arbitrarily jealous, bitchy female. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and like, that. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> who crops up again in, in, in the ballad of, of um, Lost Kamel. And it really is a case of, of a woman who just randomly and loudly um, exhibits some some anger at some other woman getting ahead of her, whether that woman is a cat or a, or a cat person, under person, or, or another woman. And it's like, wow, where does this come from? I am terribly afraid that is that was a stock character for Pulp Fiction. Um, I remember back, I was reading, oh my goodness, it was like 1926, Doc Smith's Galactic Patrol has a nurse like that. Oh man, I remember that. I remember reading those books, but I can't remember a single thing about them. <laughs> you might be better off. <laughs> wait, wait! Don't everybody winch me at once. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'll afraid protect you. I, uh, I agree. I started in the wrong place with Doc Smith, and by the time I got to the right place to start, I was too old. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, I I sort of I sort of went off the beaten tangent. Just um, went off the tangent, went off the beaten path just a little bit. But I wanted to introduce that because um, I we are we are going to meet Kamel in Alpha Alpha Boulevard, and I wanted to um, talk a little bit about some of people's reactions to her, and and where that came from. You know why why is it under person? There's this weird combination of jealousy. And also fear and hatred, because the under people are actually, and here's here's Cordwainer's twist. They have made the under people, but the under people have actually evolved to become better than humanity, like stronger, and you know, because although the humans have the utopia, the under people are have built in like suicide commands, where a human can just say to them, right, you know don't need you anymore, go off and kill yourself sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so they've been growing up under completely different circumstances and in a way because they've had that thing that they now think humanity has lost because they've had risk and danger and uncertainty. Um, they have, I don't want to quite say evolved faster because it's not a question of, we're not talking about biological evolution, but we're maybe talking about adaptation. Right. Actual um, social adaptation to circumstances, which, which will train your mind 
um, and your reactions in a certain way. So, sorry, yeah. So that's the that's the kind of the background in terms of the under people and what's happening in the wider world where they're trying to come out of the utopia now and introduce elements of of difference. Right. So, so at the beginning of Alpha Alpha Boulevard, literally, there's this great at the, the start of the third paragraph is. I myself went into a hospital and came out French. <laughs> yes. So what the instrumentality is trying to do is they're they're trying to ease people back into an imperfect life. They they want to reintroduce disease, but only so many people will die of it. And they want to take some of the kind of the soft bubble boy bumper rails off. And, and they want to introduce cultural difference again. You know, we, humanity become too homogenous. And so um, they, they take these people and, and sort of randomly assign them nationalities and languages. And they reprogram their brains to understand French instead of common English or, or German or where have you. So he walks into the hospital. He comes out French. And then the first, almost the first thing... He does is meet Virginia, who's somebody who he had known before they were both transformed into being French, and they fall in love. And it's it's obviously programmed. Yeah. He's well, well, uh, okay. You say obviously. Go on. Well, to me, it was obviously programmed. You know, mm-hmm. I, and and one of the reasons that it feels obviously programmed is because this story has a first person narrator, and and the narrator's name is Paul. He's the one who who says, "I came out French." Mm-hmm. And he, his, I think one of the things that uh, that my dad and I both bounced off a little bit back in in the day was that Paul is oddly detached from this story. So that where where you know when we were talking about Helen America and Mister Gray no more, that was an omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. and and that omniscient narrator seemed more engaged in the romance than Paul is with his own romance with Virginia. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting observation, which I also noticed, but I did a little bit of speculating, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I'll share it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul is a fairly common name, but it is the name of the actual author. Fair. Okay. Yeah. And um, he was married twice. Oh yeah, and there was the there was I think there were some hints that his first marriage ended fairly badly, hmm. and I had I, I think about halfway through the stories I went and complained to you and said, does he always write about romance either as a central thing or some kind of key plot point? <laughs> and and you were like, well, that's just the way he rolls. And there is I do think there's an element for not all writers but for some writers of of trying to work out. Either um, either find an answer for something that has happened, or to strive towards something that they want. So the fact that he keeps returning and returning again to the idea of relationships between men and women still kind of says something to me because it was such a constant theme in the stories I was reading. Yeah, yeah. And I did wonder to myself when I was reading, um, you know, about Paul and Virginia whether there was some kind of element of not just questioning determinism, because you said it's obviously programmed, right? Right. That they were to fall for each other. And, of course, that becomes the driving force for Virginia because she doesn't like the illusion of free will. She wants to know if it is free will for sure. Right. And that sends him on a pilgrimage to this 
uh, alleged god machine <laughs> to ask this oracle, um, this kind of previously tested oracle, which had predicted, not directly to her, mind you, but to a relative, um, just the word, just the phrase Paul and Virginia. And these were names that they ended up um, selecting for themselves mm -hmm. or being selected for them. I'm not yeah. even quite sure. So Selected for them. So she was thinking, if this machine was able to sort of predict that she would become Virginia and that she would end up with a Paul, maybe it could also tell her whether or not this love was true. So it's not just determinism, um, a question of do we have free will, but even a question of do we have free will in terms of who we fall for. And, and maybe that was a question he was even asking himself. So I, that's why I think sometimes that it wasn't necessarily obvious. I think it was still... A question and I'll, I'll shut up and let you continue the summary because there's another point where I thought that again I wondered to myself has this been phrased this way particularly go on go on well okay so um so Paul and Virginia meet up and and they um they decide they're going to explore this brave new world that they're part of and um one of they have a, a slight conversation about the Abedingo and Paul is surprised that Virginia would have gone to it or been taken to it before, Hang on, you didn't explain what it was. Right, well, I was getting to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's an odd name. <laughs> well, and, okay, so I wanted to pull out, at this point, I want to pull out this, this interesting um, little book, also from Nessa Press, called The Concordance to Cordwainer Smith. And this book is not a scholarly examination of Smith at all, but it is a... a compilation of, of references, uh, of sort of the interconnecting references in the instrumentality future. And it also is great for explaining the multilingual puns, ah. and especially in the names that, mm -hmm. that, um, that Smith cho chooses for, his, for all these different things. So in it, it notes that Abedingo is... Um, Okay, so the entire entry on Abedingo reads, An obsolete computer partway up in Earthport on Alpha Alpha Boulevard. The words written on its doors are in English. And then it asks, possible dating? Uh, it is a prediction machine and always works if you go up on the northern side. The under people treated it as a god. It knew Paul and Virginia 12 years before they came into being. Um, it points out that in The Planet Buyer, which is part of the novel Nostrilla, uh, that Lord Justicost is... Um, said to have a direct connection to this machine. Then it points out that Abba in Aramaic is means father, and Dingo in Australian slang means betrayal. And so you could read Abba Dingo as father of lies. Oh. <laughs> but when you said Dingo, I thought you were going to tell me, like, the actual Australian Dingo. No, apparently he. Apparently there was some kind of slang that Smith might have been familiar with that would have. Okay, because I I was thinking it was an it was an even cruder joke. In other words, God and dog. <laughs> okay, that would be hilarious. I'm sorry. <laughs> that could be. That could be too. Hmm. Um. So anyway, so that's the the Abedingo machine. It's it's. Um, it's this leftover technology from God knows when that seems... And, and the implication, once we finally get there, is actually that it's an offshoot or a kind of uh, machine evolution from a weather prediction machine. 
Mm. And that makes perfect sense because um, weather predicting is some of the most complex computational analysis <laughs> that exists. And I can it already, see, it already has a touch of magic to it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I can kind of see Cordwain or, or Paul Weinbarger actually looking at, especially the um, the military mainframes, trying to you know do the early computing to try and very crudely predict the weather, and asking himself, well, if we actually were able to get machines that could do these kind of chaotic predictions, <laughs> what couldn't they predict? Precisely. And it also ties into. Um, in Dead Lady of Clown Town, uh, the, the driver of events in that story is actually a machine that was loaded with the personality of, a, of one of the chiefs of the instrumentality. Okay. So there's all, in that story, there's a big question of how much is that machine predicting events and how much is she driving events? Mm-hmm. And there's that yes. same tension with the Abedingo. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first... But oracles always have that tension, don't they? They always have that tension. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and, and that gets back to, to Cordwainer Smith's stories with this mythic feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, before they actually get to Abedingo, they're like, hey, let's have lunch. Okay, let's go find one of these new cafes we've been hearing about. But instead of taking surface streets, they, um, there's some construction, and they have to go through one of the upper levels of tunnels... Mm-hmm. At which point they meet a very pissed off underperson, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they aren't able to just issue the telepathic stop now command because their telepathy isn't common tongue anymore; it's now French. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and then they discover what real danger feels like. <laughs> yes, and all of a sudden they are, for the first time in their lives, in real danger. And mm-hmm. Camille, this cat girl who is not just in this story, she's also in the Ballad of Lost Camille, and then she's also um, in Nordstrilla, um, one of the only characters uh, to, to span so many stories. She saves them. Uh, she distracts or basically projects an image of them farther away that the, the bull underperson goes and chases. Mm-hmm. Virginia is as frightened and pissed off by Kamel as she is by the bull guy who tried to kill them. With, with, a slight, with slightly good reason, though. Because Kamel is basically engineered to be, what's the expression? A girly a girl? A girly girl. Yes. A girly that's girl. The, that's, that is actually Smith's expression, not mine. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of almost a geisha, isn't it? That's, I think that was a description um, where, where you you have, because it's not it's not just sex, it's being a companion it's exactly. and an entertainer, and, um, but yeah, she smiled, and her smile was better suited for my eyes than for Virginia's. It spoke yeah. a whole world of voluptuous knowledge. I knew she wasn't trying to do anything to me, the rest of her manner showed that. Perhaps it was the only smile she knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and so Virginia was the whole territorial. Yeah. So, by the way, another fun thing about Kamel, um, going back to the concordance, C is the prefix for cat-derived under people. Basically, if you were a, a, a dog person, your name would start with D and then a name. Um, but for cat people, it's C, apostrophe, and then the name. Mel in Latin means honey or sweet. Mel with two L's in Gaelic means of pleasure. Kamel is the sweet cat and the pleasure cat, and... 
Cordway, uh, Paul Leinberger had his own cat named Cat Melanie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he not only pulls out these puns in Latin and Gaelic, it's also the name of his own cat. He was obviously a cat person. <laughs> Completely. Well, if, when you read a game of, of Rat and Dragon, you appreciate just how much of a cat person he is. <laughs> he was a very cat person. And yeah. A lot of science fiction people have been cat people. We're still not quite sure what what's up with that. I don't know. I think the toxoplasmosis might be a might be a, a, a factor there, but <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so after this they do finally make it to the cafe and um, and they're served by a robot who tells them that he's from the Alsace Lorraine region and thus they can speak to him in German or French. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and so they're talking a little bit more about um, the Abedingo machine and, and this idea of God, which they haven't really needed much before, but has come down to them through the ages. Um, and this guy comes up, Maximilian Macht. And he introduces himself and he says, I used to be a believer. And he says that he can tell them more about this stuff. And Paul Did you did you get Nazi vibes from him? Yeah, yeah. So oh, I've got... Con- it got worse, SS vibes. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Yeah, I'm not... I've never quite been sure of his character. Um, mm. By the way, in the concordance, they... Where is it? Mock Maximilian. Um, mocked in German means power. Uh, the name means the greatest thing made... Um, but also, uh, Mach and Sa are five and six in Etruscan. Oh my goodness. And a lot, actually, for some reason, reading this concordance, a lot of, um, uh, line, of Corner and Smith character names are, are five and six. They, they put together five from one language and six from the same language or another language, or it's 56 or something. I'm, they, they don't That's explain, just thing. They don't explain why that might be. <laughs> <laughs> they just note oh, it every time it happens okay okay um anyway but yeah very nasty vibes and now it's paul's turn to be the suspicious one and and kind of territorial mm-hmm yep and so mott and and virginia hatch this plan to go visit the abadingo and try and find out essentially if they have free will <laughs> and <laughs> mm-hmm. let's just contemplate for a moment the idea of asking a machine if you have free will but that was what made it so audacious <laughs> because you you really you have a people who have only recently been de-utopia eyes they're accustomed to having machines and created things doing stuff for them right it almost makes perfect sense that the moment they are kind of you know they're they're kind of thrown back a bit um, in their evolutionary um, track, you know, they become a little more atavistic. They're going to go, okay, we need some answers. We need a God. Look, there's a machine. He'll do this for us. You know, right, right. It, 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 there's, a, there's a very odd kind of sense to it all, really. Um, but there was something else I was going to ask you when you were giving me the concordance um, clarifications. I did wonder if Alpha Alpha Boulevard stood for anything. Anything special. It is not. It is not called out as as referencing anything in particular. Mhm. Mhm. Um. Nope. 
<laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I know. I was kind of bummed. That's like the first thing I turned to. Because the, the only thing that just sort of vaguely crossed my memory, my, my, my mind just now, and you are going to laugh at me, but I don't care, is that it almost reinforces Abadingo if you have Alpha Ralpha. Well, sometimes he just liked that sing-song kind of rhyming pairs. Mm. In, yeah. in some other stories, you'll, you'll trip across these things that sound really silly, but they do stick. Yes, that's true. It's, it's got a, a swing to it. It's very musical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, he seemed to be um, kind of susceptible to, to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they head off, um, they head off towards Alpha Ruffa Boulevard. Before they get there, um, they stop to talk, and Mocked starts randomly stomping on under people bird eggs. Yeah. And Paul makes him stop. Because and Paul is picking up telepathic complaints from from the um from the under peoples. Yeah. And, or I assume mother, it could be any caretaker. And then mm-hmm. that is what tips the balance of the story. So from that point on the under people are actually kind of helping Paul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's actually kind of the first time that Paul took real action in the story. Other than that, he'd been a kind of passive observer. Yes. And then you also begin to see the, the dark side of de-utopiaization because um, it becomes clear that Mach enjoys pain and suffering and, and so forth. So he's actually the kind of person that would have been controlled under the, under the old dispensation. But now that they're trying all this randomness and open stuff, he's, he's actually been unleashed in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they go up. They start to go up Alpha Alpha Boulevard. And they realize that they, you know, like, like you say, de-utopianize people. They're used to being able to get food whenever they ask for it. So they had to yes. carry anything. Uh-huh. And Alpha Ruffle Boulevard, for whatever reason, is broken. Um, it, apparently it's been there for hundreds of centuries. And, uh, and, and so there's no food or water there. Uh, they do find a moving sidewalk kind of thing that shoots them up to the top, first mocked, and then Paul and Virginia... And in a very dangerous way. <laughs> very dangerous way. Pretty much tosses or tosses mocked off the edge. Uh, Paul and Virginia only barely avoid going over the edge. Um, Paul and Virginia finally make it to the Abadingo. And and yeah, it's it's got a slightly burned down or not uh, sorry not burned down but uh, abandoned carnival feel to it. But um, but one said meteorological. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, let's see, the panel became translucent and ancient writing showed through. There are numbers which meant nothing, words which meant nothing, and then typhoon coming. So at this point, they've, they've gone up. The Alpha Alpha Boulevard is, is one of the ancient roads that went to the Earth port, which is kind of, uh, I'm not sure if it's a space needle or a space elevator, or but it's either way, it's very high up, right? Mm-hmm. And now we know... And, and they've already been dropping hints that the wind has been picking up. And now this says typhoon coming. And Paul's like, huh, I wonder what that means. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and again, he's used to the weather being controlled. Mm-hmm. He's never lived in a world without, without you know, oh, it's, it's six o'clock. It's going to be sunny right now. So, um, so then they get to the actual prediction machine. Um, Virginia actually puts her hand in in the slot. And so her prediction is literally inscribed into her skin. 
which is um, an interesting symbol. And yeah. then it said, the word said in queer French, you will love Paul all your life. Paul then tears tears off some a piece of bandage that he'd used to um, bandage her hand. And he puts the he puts the bandage in. And when his comes back, it says, You will love Virginia 21 more minutes. <laughs> Which was one of the most chilling parts of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Just so chilling. And he kind of claims that he didn't know what it meant. But then he also says, accidentally on purpose, I let the wind take the scrap. It fluttered away like a bird. Virginia Mm -hmm. saw it go. And when she says, what did it say? He lies his head off. (laughs) Yes. Now, don't tell me, though. At this stage, I actually thought to myself, it means that he's going to die. I mean, he's the first person narrator. I don't know how I thought this was going to work. But <laughs> I, thought, I thought that he was going to die and she was going to be mourning him for the rest of her life. That was actually what I thought was going to happen. Interesting. Yes. So they start going back down. Mott is still crawling around in the kind of cabling under the, the boulevard. Um... The wind is picking up. They're they're in the middle of, of like I say, an actual typhoon up high high up and with nothing protecting them. The birds, the underpeople birds, are trying to protect them, and so is Camel. But Virginia is so afraid of even being touched by an underperson that in flinching away from Camel, she goes over the side. Yeah. And then Kamel's going, huh, well, sorry about her, but I'm here to take care of you. Knocks Paul unconscious and yes. carries him to safety. <laughs> which, which to me was brilliant because, like I said, she's supposed to be this sort of girly girl, um, you know, engineered to be sort of pretty and feminine and attractive in that way. And she's got the strength to knock out a human man. She's hiding this, you know. It's your classic oppressed person. Don't show them that you're smarter and stronger and, and so on and so forth because then they'll really be scared of you. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really fascinating, especially when you consider the next stories about her actually being very instrumental in the um, emancipation of the under people. <clears throat> right, and even there, again, she can play, she can play innocent and girly and, and clueless when she, exactly when she needs to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, and again, Linebarger had a very, very good sense for the psychology of of class and, and race relationships and, and power. I mean, it's just raw power. Mm-hmm. Power dynamics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as, as somebody well-versed in psychological warfare, that, that has <laughs> been his bread and butter, essentially. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote one of the classic textbooks on psychological warfare. So, um, so then when, uh, so that just about ends the story. Um, Paul, Paul wakes up and, and the doctor says, well, you've had quite a shock, but, um, you know, I can erase, I can erace all the memories for you if you want. <laughs> like, no, no, I think I'm, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Now, now here's a curious bit because you said at the beginning that it was obviously engineered. They would fall for each other. But then you have 
uh, a curious situation happening. The machine doesn't actually say to her anything that could imply that it was free will on either side. All it said is, you will love Paul for the rest of your life, and she was satisfied with that. Why should she be satisfied with that? I know. That, that would have been true whether or not it had been engineered. Correct. Exactly. See, you you said that Virginia was one of the st- the female characters that didn't annoy you. She was one of the ones that did annoy me. <laughs> but at least at least she'd been actually programmed to be like that. <laughs> she wasn't she wasn't like that randomly because you know a fifties author couldn't write a future woman. True. She was actually meant to have gone through a process where she came out with this sort of new um, kind of throwback um, French speaking. Um, old culture personality so it made sense that she should be as annoying as she i don't mind when characters are annoying it just has to be it has to fit in the context if it doesn't fit in the context that's what i find more jarring or upsetting than if the character itself is just like an unlikable character or even a stereotype if but i mean the point is they were made to be stereotypes because stereotypes was all they could glean from the past knowledge that they had the knowledge of the past that they had. Okay. So, yeah. so I, 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 I granted her that. But, but and yeah, so as I said, she took that declaration by the Abadingo to confirm what she wanted confirmed. Right, right. And, and but it was a non-answer. She, she substituted her idea of free will for just another machine. Yeah, yeah, well, they, they, they both did, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the fascinating thing is that Paul's message, you know, you will love Virginia for 21 minutes. <laughs> it's like, okay, she's dead. I'm cured. Was that what that was about? <laughs> because that almost sounded to me as if the implication, the way, the way that she was so quick to accept almost sounded as if whatever the engineering was, she had really fallen in love and he hadn't really. Yeah was willing to just sort of go along with it and that's where I can understand where the detachment comes from yeah and by the way there is a paragraph where um, that makes it I think really clear that it was programmed when she says uh, Paul why does it all happen so fast this is our first day we both feel that we may spend the rest of our lives together there's something about marriage whatever that is and we're supposed to find a priest and I don't understand that either <laughs> I was like yes this is programmed <laughs> But they they did know each other for a long time previously. Yeah, yeah. It's obvious that they had that those two individuals had known each other before all this happened. So to me, in a way, I could understand how she might have had the feelings before, but now she's got a fresh context in which to frame those feelings. So so you know the 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 whole happening suddenly thing may not have been a happening suddenly in the sense of we will now program her to fall in love, but in the sense of the programming was just all about here's a new framework. For, for your understanding of your world. Here's a new worldview. And she channeled whatever feelings she would have had before <clears throat> that would not have been, um, you know, parlayed in the sense of, you know, this is, this is how two people get together. But then because she's been given a new framework, she then sort of um, expresses it through that new framework. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. <laughs> it does. Okay. I can totally and, do that. And, and me, meanwhile, he was he was just being friendly all along because even the way he describes her, I'm sorry, but have you seen how he describes her compared to how he described Kamel? Yeah. <laughs> Not even in comparison. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. I got a little... Okay. Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. 
um, stocky, full figure, chubby, pretty Maranima, which I had noticed, who I had noticed, whom I had noticed in our block when we were both children. So they, they knew each other when they were children. Sorry, I'm trying to find a first description, first, first description. She, she was small, verging on chubby, page yes. 76. She's <laughs> compact. Her head was covered with tight brown curls. Her eyes were brown, so deep and so rich. It took sunlight with her squinting against it to bring forth the treasures of her irises. I had known her well, but never known her. I had seen her often, but never seen her with my heart until we met just outside the hospital after becoming French. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So, so it's not actually a very flattering description for all he talks about seeing her with his heart. It's more a case of, oh, look, she's also been programmed to be French too. So she would have been one of the few people he could have interacted with. Right, right. And then I'm looking for, for Camille, and, and I'm just enjoying this initial dialogue. Um, a girl stood quietly next to the wall. I'd almost mistaken her for a statue, and then she spoke. Come no closer. I'm a cat. It was easy enough to fool him. You'd better get back to the surface. Thank you, I said. Thank you. What's your name? Does it matter, said the girl. I'm not a person. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and a little offended, I insisted, I just wanted to thank you. As I spoke to her, I saw she was as beautiful and as bright as a flame. Her skin was clear, the color of cream, and her hair, finer than any human hair could possibly be, was the wild golden orange of a Persian cat. Yeah, I'm really worried about Cordovino Smith and his cat. I really, I seriously am. <laughs> Luckily, they are, they are both, I'm, I'm far beyond our, our scandalous, uh, scandalous intimations. I'm so sorry. I should not do that yet. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, dear. But yeah, I mean, even, even that contrasting um, the descriptions really kind of tells you what kind of love he may have thought he had for Virginia, and then even what kind of attraction he then had for Kamel. Mind you, which Kamel did not re reciprocate at all. Um, right. yeah, but, no. but it just, it just kind of shows you that, um, you know, in a way, the message of the Abedingo may not have been immediately clear, but it was accurate. Yeah, yeah. And like, like you say, like every oracle ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so do we think we can... On the gem planet is actually a simpler story for all that it's longer. Very much simpler, yes. Um, I know that we've been... We're probably trying people's patience already, but but bear with us. <laughs> we're almost there. <laughs> we're almost there. Mm -hmm. Okay, on the gem planet, Kasher O'Neill was the nephew of a dictator who was renowned for his debauchery. Mm -hmm. Not a particularly violent dictator, just a very neglectful and, and sort of scandalous one. Um, the dictator was overthrown by a military coup, and Kasher was actually like, hey, okay, that's, not, that's probably not a bad thing. My uncle was no, no great shakes as a leader. But now the military coup is getting very repressive. Um, the intimation is that this is uh, firmly based in, in Middle Eastern and specifically Egyptian politics. Mm -hmm. uh, his his home planet is called Mizr, and and they specifically talk about the twelve Niles. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you know, okay, so you got that. Um, these these three linked stories on the Gem Planet, on the Storm Planet, and then on the Sand Planet uh, tell Kasher's story of um, 
first he's a young man and he's not so much out for revenge. Well, he doesn't think he's out for revenge. He thinks he's out to save his people. Um, he's looking for money or weapons or anything that he can do to, to save his, his people from this military dictator. Mm -hmm. Um, he slowly comes to, he actually comes to religious faith. And then in the end that allows him, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> that allows him to to change in, introduce regime change non-violently let's okay. put it that way mm -hmm. and this reflects actually Cordwainer Smith's growing religious faith towards the end of his life he became a very very devout Episcopalian um, he sort of um, you know found found strength in Christianity um, apparently towards toward in his in his waning years so on the gem planet is um, the youngest Casher O'Neill story, and he comes to this store to this planet that is essentially one giant gemstone <laughs> um, soil soil that you can actually grow something in is is incredibly expensive. Um, it's it's a luxury. Potted plants are you know status symbols. <laughs> yes, and on this planet. Um, a, a Nordstrillin, okay, so Nordstrilla is the planet where the immortality drug is made. It's the only planet where the immortality drug can be made. So obviously it is the richest planet in the universe. Um, a person from Nordstrilla, having reached the end of the time that even the immortality drug could sustain his life, took himself and his favorite horse that he'd made immortal with him, as you do. Like you do. <laughs> and he went to, to live out his final days um, in the spot that he decided was the most beautiful spot in all of the universe on this gem planet. And, um, and then he dies, but the horse is still there. And the horse has nowhere to go, and it can't, um, uh, it can't die. <laughs> yeah. The horse, Which is a bummer at this stage. <laughs> right. So the horse climbs four kilometers out of a gem canyon... Which find, is not easy. <laughs> which is not a trivial task to go find people to help it. But the horse isn't an underperson horse. It's not like it's telepathic and has language skills and is really a person that just has horse ancestry. It's just it's a, a horse. horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the source of a lot of the confusion. So Kasher shows up on this planet and he's talking to the to the ruler who's actually kind of the ruler in trust for um, a, a girl that I took to be maybe late teenager. Yes. And whose name, interestingly enough, is Genevieve. Hey, look at that. His wife's name. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Genevieve is a very perceptive young woman. Let's just say. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> and um, and the, this, so this ruler says basically, okay, so I understand what you want of me. And, there are two things that I need to do in order to help you. For one, I'm going to telepathically scan your mind because I want to make sure that you're not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and for one, we should, we should all have that skill. <laughs> yeah. And basically, I mean, it's a great thing. He says, you know, I want to make sure, oh, if you're too honest, you're a fool and a danger to mankind. I'll give you a dinner and ship you off planet as soon as I can. Yes. Um, it was a refreshing conversation, wasn't it? It was. It was very straightforward. 
And then he said, you know, and then I want you to, to help uh, um, help us solve this puzzle of the horse. What should we do with it? Should we should we eat it? Should we, <laughs> you know, how do you cook horse? We have no idea. Should we, you know, is there something we can do to make its life better? You know, what, what should we be doing with it? Can we trade it? That kind of thing. And mm-hmm. on this resort planet that Kasher is from, he... Um, they used to have like horse races. You know, that was one of yeah. the popular entertainments. So at least he has more experience with horses than, than these folks do. And it turns out Genevieve has helpfully made a documentary <laughs> of, of this entire story so that we get the whole backstory about the North Strillin and the guy and the horse and the Canyon, um, through a, a, a nicely made documentary, <laughs> which just struck me as the most random thing. It's a beautiful way to have your exposition, isn't it? <laughs> it was. It was. I was like, okay, okay, that's that's different. So, um, so the well, you just you just pulled a Gary. I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've learned... You should you should pre-pour your liquor like I do. <laughs> I've learned from the master. What can I say? You you have you have yes. Sorry, please. Okay, please so proceed. um, so the horse is in a person hospital because that's you know, the only hospitals that they have, and, and they didn't want to put him in an underperson hospital. And, um, and what Kasher says is, get me a telepath, an underperson telepath who isn't based on a carnivore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, actually, not just not based on a carnivore, because initially they had a very bad experience with a tiger person. Right, right. Yeah, they sent a tiger um, person to rescue the horse, and the horse is like, hell no. <laughs> but again, they do indeed find a dog in the end, and dog is a carnivore, but the point is that dogs and horses are accustomed to working together, so there's there's still that um, lack of absolute terror <laughs> happening. Right, right, and also the dog person that they find is just a very, very happy person. Um, in fact, they said, you know, we had to kind of send her away from the people because, because she was too irritatingly happy because <laughs> she was just too happy who can put up with someone just walking around being that happy all the time <laughs> and there's a very small scene where Kasher and the dog person recognize each of recognize that each of them knows something about Christianity which was really threw me off until you told me about the whole arc exactly because I was like this is portrayed very significantly, but it seems so random. And then I realized that it was actually part of the entire arc and was leading up to something else. It was else leading up to something, yeah. It doesn't pay off in this story, but it pays off in the next two. And, mm-hmm. and so he was laying groundwork with that. And, and obviously, they call it the old strong religion, and it's obviously basically been suppressed by the instrumentality, but it has managed to survive, you know, for umpty thousand years. Like you do. Yep. So, lots, lots of sci-fi tradition with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the dog person gets in touch with, the, puts Kasher and Genevieve in touch with the horse. And, um, and the horse is basically like, I have nothing to do and nowhere to run. This, oh. this is just torture. Mm-hmm. Either, just, either find me a place where I can run and be with people or, or just let me go. And so what they do, what Kasher does is basically he... Um, he says, let's put the horse up on one of the satellites with lower gravity. Let some of your totally ceremonial guards ride him every now and again on, on basically a treadmill. Telepathically set him up where he thinks he's running, you know, an eternal race on some wonderful, you know, tur- you know, soft springy green turf. And 
Um, the Nordstrillen obviously had some kind of food converter for him, so go pull that out of the canyon and, and, and you know, feed him alfalfa. <laughs> and it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in return for all this, and after the, the, um, the Ruhr obviously getting a satisfactory view of Kasher's mind and motivations, um, he, he sails off with a very, very large ruby that he can use <laughs> as, a, um, as a laser component. Which which I thought was really amusing because at first I thought oh you know this is this is actual payment or you know it's economic sense no 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 this will make a good weapon <laughs> yeah it's and they're like we're not going to give you a weapon but we'll give you a really valuable weapon component <laughs> yeah and mm-hmm. and then the other thing is that Genevieve through this story has developed a crush on Casher and and they sort of have a a a bit of a, gosh, a it would moment. have been nice if moment yeah, in a garden yeah. and, and then Kasher goes off. Yeah. <laughs> and as I said, this story baffled me because this was the first one I read. Yeah, and gosh, I mean, technically, this I think this was the first one I read too back when I was, like I say, 14 or 15, but my ex, you know, I didn't walk into it with a lot of expectations, so I was just like, oh, that's a fun story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my reaction, sadly enough, and there is probably a cultural component to this, was it's a damn horse. Why is he so interested in keeping a horse alive? And it only became significant to me when put in the context of the arc of humanity, as I said, where earlier you have this bit where, you know, under people can be commanded to commit suicide. People are very kind of cynical and very, you know, there's, 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 that kind of diminishing of empathy. Right, where under people were literally disposable. Exactly. And now you come to a point where a horse, which is in a sense lower than an under person, is, is being treated so beautifully and given a kind of a personal heaven. And and that is supposed to say something about where humanity has has returned to or has, has managed to re- where it's managed to reach. Mm-hmm. So um, so that was fascinating. And I didn't know if he was trying to say something about suffering and empathy together. And then one of the other um, things I was thinking about was, you know, um, so here, more than a lot of the other stories, you get into international relationships, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, where a supplicant from a deposed regime is coming and asking for something from a more, a, a richer, more powerful regime. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any, any opinion about the, the accuracy of those sorts of <laughs> negotiations. <laughs> Ah, well, in the, in the sense that um, the the person who had the, the superior power was not disposed to waste any time on him, <laughs> where he was just like, you know, I'm going to just scan your mind right now and see if, it's, if you're worth spending time on, and if you're not, I'll just be courteous, but I'll send you off. Mm-hmm. In, in that sense, absolutely. It's, um, and, and it also in the sense of the whole, you know, Genevieve and him having a moment but saying it would be nice is because she recognizes that whatever alliances she makes has have to be political. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a, an old new feeling about that mm-hmm. in, um, where, and it's, and it's a nice touch because it also kind of shows that humanity has gone far back enough to maybe appreciate love again. But not so far gone <laughs> that they can't appreciate the benefits of a political marriage. So, so there's there's a bit of a reality check built in to that that little scenario. As 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 random as it did seem, again, I'm very much the whole Cordwainer Smith is once more putting a little trail of romance into one of his stories. Right. 
But again, so, you know, when when you name a character after your wife, this is going to happen. Yes, <laughs> you kind of have to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, so that kind of comes to the end of of a really a really sort of top level view. I mean. All of Cordwainer Smith's science fiction is contained in this single Nesva volume plus one novel. And yet I feel like you could spend a career studying this stuff. It's, it's really quite a, an amazingly detailed universe. And I'm, I'm impressed because I did think initially when you suggested the stories, I did think that this might have been one of our podcasts that ran over to have to become another podcast that happened with the Egan stories. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but I'm glad that I think I think that for me that was easier with this because there's some very clear arcs. There are some very clear connections between these stories. Well, I feel a little bad as I always do. I, I every time that I choose a, a handful of stories from a single author for us to consider, I walk out and go, "Oh gosh, I I just that probably wasn't the best selection." Because <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. There's so many. You know, there's so much else. You know, we could have had a completely different conversation if I had pulled, if I had, you know, pulled four different stories. Well, this is true, and I, I want to at this point give a tiny shout out to a short, short, humorous story called um, "From Gustable's Planet." <laughs> and the reason why I'm giving that a shout out is that I thought I had not read Corbin Smith, and then I saw that title. I'm like, hang on. I think I've read that. And I went and I reread it. I was like, yes, I have read this. And I enjoyed it. And it's, and it's just a humorous, silly little tale about these gluttonous aliens that kind of come to Earth and make a perfect nuisance of themselves and, until humans realize that they're very, very tasty, like mm-hmm. roast duck. <laughs> and it's just, it's, just so, it's just really hilarious. It's, I just, it's I just love it. It's cute and random and, and funny. I mean, that's one thing about Cordoner Smith. He had a hell of a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. For as weird, like I say, for as weird as his psychology and politics were, he also had a good sense of humor. And I do want to point out that when, when, when I at least, I'm not to speak for you, but when I at least pick apart um, the portrayal of women by a author that's publishing in the 50s and 60s, I do it in full appreciation that they're very much a creation of their time and their environment. Right, right. So um, nothing that I say is in a way uh, um, a rejection of his obvious talent as a writer, nor a reflection of him as a human being, but very much talking about this is the way American culture was then. And you can tell that there was this, there, there really seems to be a, have been a very strong segregation of the sexes. A very strong segregation of the sexes and a tendency, what was it we called it? Almost like a gender performance. Yeah, yeah, performance of gender, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you, performance of gender. Because, I mean, you can even see it in actually writ large in Kamel, where um, you have, the reason why she seems to evoke such anger, (laughs) such, um, you know, reactions in other women is that um, she's, she's got the whole um, performance of femininity down pat. And if there's another woman nearby who is lacking in some way in that performance, they immediately feel inferior because they know that in the society that they're in, the performance is all. The performance of the femininity, the performance of masculinity 
these are the things that are important. Um, in a game of Rat and Dragon, I know we're going over time, but I got to say this. Um, he read my mind. The bit, the bit that the bit that killed me was when um, at the end, a nurse has a sort of a a random jealous outburst because she can see that the the pilot who she's um, sorry, not a pilot. What were they? Uh, well, the, pin lighters. The, the defen- pin lighters. Pin lighters. The, the ones who are defending the, the um, interstellar ships, um, she can see that he's got such a huge attachment to his, his cat partner. And she feels really threatened by this. And he's kind of reading her mind, which is extremely rude. But, um, but you know, she's, suddenly she's swung around on him. You pinlighters, you and your damn cats. Yeah. Just as she stamped out, he burst into her mind. He saw himself a radiant hero, clad in his smooth suede uniform, the pinset crown shining like ancient royal jewels around his head. He saw his own face, handsome and masculine, shining out of her mind. He saw himself very far away, and he saw himself as she hated him. I was like, what the heck? Handsome yeah. and masculine? <laughs> you know, and, but but it, was, it was a reaction because... Um, the irony, of course, is that he then he then goes on to describe his cat with all these feminine values, mm-hmm. and, and the nurse's reaction is really because, in a way, the cat has feminized her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, what was it? Um, he cut off the sight of her in his mind. This is still the nurse, and as he buried his face in the pillow, he caught an image of the lady name. She is she is a cat. He thought that's all she is a cat. But that's not how his mind saw her. Quick beyond all dreams of speed, sharp, clever unbelievably graceful, beautiful, wordless, and undemanding. Where would he ever find a woman who could compare with her? <sighs> I said I was worried about Smith and his cats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, the last line feels scarily unironic. It was scarily unironic. Okay, I'm I will sure grant you that. Readers, I'm sure there's some readers who will read it as being ironic. But especially after he's just described the nurse having this little temper tantrum and, and, and all, all the rest of it, and, and also in the context of how Smith has portrayed other women in his stories, I'm just like, wow. Although, to be fair, uh, yes. Game of Rat and Dragon, again, one of, the, one of the earlier, like maybe his third published SF story. Okay. And as mm-hmm. we saw from Lady Who Sailed the Soul and on Gem Planet, and you, if you get a chance to read on the Storm Planet, you'd see it even more. Um, it, I think he evolves from that point. Well, well I, I'm actually, I'm actually not using this to say he he hasn't evolved from position. I'm actually using it to say this is still about the performance of gender because the reason why this scene is interesting to me is that in a way it points to why under people like Kamel were created. Mm, mm-hmm. So I, I find that very much linked, and in a sense, I think that scene is, is important, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do away with it. Okay. Um, it would need to be in, linked with and in context with Kamel and the cat people, and especially girly girl cat people. But, um, but it's just fascinating because we are really, when we're talking about a man preferring a cat because a cat has more feminine values, we really are talking about performance of gender as opposed to, to simple... Um, raw attraction between um, two biological halves of humanity. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. 
Oh my goodness. Anyway, so so yes, it says it says a lot about the society at the time, probably more even than he intended to say. But I just I find it fascinating. Still, I'm glad that that with all with all of Smith's problems, and I will admit that there are some Smith's things that are just incredibly problematic in in this day and age. And I kind of tried to steer clear of the worst of them. Um, that you found something that you found something worth reading here. I'm really happy that you enjoyed at least some of the stories. No, well, he's obviously a fantastic writer, and and mind you, I mean we read Jane Austen. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> <laughs> so you know a, a a writer being of their time is is not um, is not a crime unless they're sort of egregiously um, hostile to uh, a particular branch of, of humanity. And I, did, I didn't get that sense from him. Um, there may have been a sense at times that perhaps he didn't feel like he understood women very well, <laughs> but I didn't really get a sense that he hated them. You see what I'm saying? No, no, yeah. So, um, but no, the um, he had a lot of courage. He had, he was he was audacious um, in some of his choices, and and some of the choices, as I said, were just so casual, like the abortion, the lady who saved the soul. That was that was almost casual. I was like, you know, I'll just slip this in, and and there are people who cannot be that restrained in contemporary writing where they have to go, look, see, I'm doing something daring and groundbreaking and not as we would do it in this day and age. And I'm like, yeah, calm down. You're writing about the future. To be fair, Cordwainer Smith was, was writing under a pseudonym in a name where pseudonyms actually, er, in an age where pseudonyms actually worked. Like today we all know that Seanan, um, uh, Mary Grant and Seanan McGuire are the same person. Okay, yeah. You know, I in that time, people did not know about the connection between Cordwainer Smith and Paul Linebarger. That was actually a fairly well-kept secret, just like James, James Tiptree and Alice Shelton. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So That's that might have given him some, or it might have given him s- some psychological freedom to, to make some of those statements. Well, freedom to make the statements, but it would still have had to have been a personal choice not to trumpet that. Um, oh, yeah, good point, decision. good point. So, so you know, in that sense, I still got to give him props. Yep. I know, we got we to gotta wrap up. Oh, yeah, oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. This is our longest podcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and you said it wasn't as bad as Greg Egan where we went to, into two podcasts. Greg Egan, we did eight stories. This one, we only had four. <laughs> We, we had four, but we referred to two others. So strictly speaking, we could say we had six. At least. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, okay, so looking ahead for anyone who is still listening, and thank you so much. Um, yeah. So in our next podcast, we are planning to talk about a novella and a short story. So wish us luck with that. Um, yeah. And the novella- Standard hour. <laughs> <laughs> the novella is Distances by Vandana Singh. And the short story is Single Bit Error by Ken Liu. Uh, both of them are phenomenally good authors. And, and we expect to have excellent things to say about them. Um, Let's see. In the future, we also we may get some people to talk about some things that we've already talked about. Uh, Gary Wolf has expressed some interest in maybe talking a little bit about Cordwainer Smith, um, and we might find some people at Worldcon later on to talk about oh who what which oh Gene Wolf. So I hope that um, um, and when hang on when she says we in Worldcon that means her in Worldcon because I'm not going to be there. Well, yeah, but we, you will be there via Skype in spirit. Via Skype. That's, wait a minute, that's the end of August? End of August. 
Ah, Worldcon end of August. Okay, okay. Check in the schedule. We'll, we'll work all the details later. We'll work yes. out the details. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But it could happen. So let's, It could happen. <laughs> you know, I don't want to overpromise, but I do want to tease. So Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So um, until then, next week, Vandana Singh and Ken Liu, and we hope you will join us. See you then.